In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast we are here with our friend uh an amazing scholar an amazing man who's wrote an amazing book called the seven deadly sins and we are working our way through them today we are on envy which i gotta i gotta tell you dr solomon uh as i've read through these sins and we speak with them i feel like i live these sins every week because i'm studying them i'm reading them and i'm more aware of them and this is kind of a tough one. This one hit home yeah. for me. It's a, it it's does a raise doozy. awareness. It makes you makes you a little bit more self conscious about things, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. It really does, and especially this one. I, I I felt that this one is something that kind of seeps into me, and I I find myself, you know, trying to be the best human I can. But sometimes you see other people, and they have these things, and you. You look for reasons why you don't have them. And that's right. probably the wrong path to go down. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the problem, right? It's not a question of, and envy really isn't about, I want what that guy has. It's that I don't like that he has it and that I don't. Um, it seems unfair. And so uh, in this chapter, I talk a lot about the the distinction between equality and equity. Right. It's really what we're talking about is we want we want equity. We don't really want equality. And envy becomes most often a, a question about justice. It just it doesn't seem fair that you have a nice car and I don't. Um, and it's not necessarily the case that I want to take it from you. Uh, it's just that I, I I am envious of the fact that you have it and I don't. Um, because, as I say, it just seems to be a question of fairness. And in the chapter, I mean, I start at the obvious place, which is the story of Cain and Abel, um, two brothers who, uh, you know, don't don't exactly um, have the relationship with God in the uh, book of Genesis that is equal, to be sure. And uh, when Abel is um, blessed by God, Cain becomes uh, envious. We, we, we more often today say jealous, but it really is envy. 
Uh, and as a result, he, he kills his brother. Um, but he's warned about it ahead of time. I mean, uh, you know, the, the text talks about sin crouching at the door. I mean, you have to be careful. You have to watch for that. And I mean, I, I opened the chapter with a story of hitting my my own brother in the head with a block when we were when we were young, um, <laughs> and uh, for for probably for a similar reason of, of being envious. But uh, in that case, I as I say in the book, I received no punishment. Uh, Cain's punishment is a little bit more severe, uh, and it, it, it's an interesting legacy that he leaves. Then, of course, yeah. The fact that you've carried it with you for so long, I don't know about the punishment, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it, it's, it's so funny. So, so, so the story is my, my brother and I, I'm, I'm, I'm three years older than he is. And uh, when we were very, very young, I think I was probably, I don't know, I was probably six and he was probably three. And um, I don't even remember what, what perpetuated it, but I, I hit him in the head with a block, a wooden block. And, uh, opened up a gash in his forehead and um of course my mother completely freaked out and we went i, I remember when we went down to the to our pediatrician who was who lived in our building as was not unusual in new york city of the 60s and 70s and he needed stitches and i remember walking around in the hallway outside the the examination room hearing my brother screaming thinking this is just horrible and i wanted to to go in there and save him but it was the hilarious part about this is that my mother never knew the truth about it until we were both in our, our mid thirties and we had come home to visit once and we were watching home movies and for some reason got onto that, that, that topic. And we told her what had actually happened and she was absolutely horrified <laughs> because the story that we had told was that the block fell off the, the shelf and hit him in the head. And she, uh, she bought that for, for about three decades man it's you know it's bringing it back to the story of Cain Abel in in the book you say he was uh exiled not for yeah. envy but for the murder of his brother that's kind of an interesting point right there yeah I mean it, you know we we think about Cain as being the first murderer right um and he's always invoked in that kind of a of a um of a situation but I mean really I mean before the murder what he's guilty of is the sin of envy um, and he really, that is what compels him to commit the murder in many ways. Um, and his exile is, is a punishment. I mean, he is, of course, he, he, he complains, he worries that, you know, people will see him and, and they're going to want to kill him um, as retribution. And so God gives him uh, what's called the mark of Cain, the mark on his forehead, um, warning people not to kill him, that he needs to live out his life in exile with that uh guilt yeah it's that's that's a second point where you know envy can actually change your appearance in that particular story i yeah. guess he gets the mark but right. it's still changing his appearance and then you also talk about you know envy having the ability we hear stuff like green with envy and, yeah. and how it changes yeah. your appearance it kind of changes one's countenance Right, it 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 changes your um, your physical appearance, but also, in some ways, your um, emotional appearance, if you will. Um, you project differently, and um, you know. To be sure, we talk about people being green with envy, and that's that's a an old medieval trope. 
but um, no one's really sure where it originates from. But it it, it it's this sense that, um, and I, I think the Genesis text also refers to Cain's countenance changing, right? It, it's just his his entire um, sense of being has shifted, and that that you know we we have often sort of characterize somebody who's being envious as, as it just being pretty ugly, right? Envy is an ugly thing. Um, and I, I think that we, we use that word as a, as a euphemism, but, but it, it has some credibility because of course, as you say, I mean, Cain's appearance does in fact change. Yeah. It, when I look at it in myself and if I ever find myself slipping into it, I, I feel it changes the way I see the environment and it changes the way I act in the environment. And not only that, but it's, it's contagious. It's like looking for other people like, Hey, do you see what these people have? Or do you see that? Yeah. And hopefully you have someone around you strong enough to be like, Hey, what's wrong with you, man? What, look at all the stuff you yeah. have. But yeah. it's, it's, it's a problem of falling into, to, to comparing yourself with everybody else. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the age of social media has just uh, oh been an unbelievable um, black hole for that. Right. I mean, social media is all about comparison with others. Um, and I, I, I talk in the chapter quite a bit about how social media has contributed to our culture being more and more hung up on envy and being envious of other people. Um, and oftentimes, of course, the, the, the real sort of tragedy of this is that uh, oftentimes when you're envious of someone on social media, it, it's actually pretty empty because the what they're projecting that you're envious of is is a complete artifice it's it's made up um it has no very very little to no relationship to what reality really is like so you know i'll have friends on social media on facebook who will post and and seem like they're living this the, this ideal life and um you know for a moment you know i do have these pangs of envy and say gee you know i wish i were living that kind of a life but yeah. then I have to take that step back, as you say, George, and 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 separate myself from the situation and say, well, that's not entirely real, and that's not the whole story. Um, yeah, you know, we can all project what we want online. There's that that famous New Yorker cartoon from oh my gosh, it must be the early '90s, late '80s, where you know the dog says, "No one knows you're a dog online." Um, <laughs> up any kind of persona that you want. Um, yeah. And a lot of people do that, right? They, they 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 curate their their persona for an online world. Yeah, like no one, very few people go online and show like the sadness of their life or the hey, I don't get to spend any time with my child. Look at me just working all yeah. the time, you know. Or and, and if they do, it's almost as if that's a pendulum that swung too far to the other end, right? Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of the the the, the woe is me. Um, yeah. Sort of poster who who does nothing but complain about their yeah. existence in the hopes of of securing some sort of sympathy and empathy from from others. It's it's I forget what the kids call it, but you know when you post these sort of open ended strange postings that are sort of just this really nebulous sort of thing, and it's like what something's wrong. <laughs> and, you know, they, they sort of want somebody to say you know oh what's wrong. Um, yeah. And maybe that's just, you know, part of it is a, is a characteristic of of modern life, I guess, and and the fact that um, 
people tend, especially after COVID, to be very lonely, and and social media can really uh, reinforce that loneliness and, and exaggerate it. And as a result, people feel the need to post these sort of you know cryptic messages that evoke interaction from their 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 friends online. Yeah, that's. It's so sad in a way. It's it's almost like people are envious that people have real friends or they're envious of relationships or they're lacking relationships of some sort. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's you know, modern life is a tough thing, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. uh, you know, and, you know, we, we, can, we can go back and say, oh, well, everyone has always said that, right? That contemporary life is difficult. Um, they probably said it in, in the 18th century and they probably said it in the 4th century. Um, because we always see, see the world through our own lens, but, um, it does seem that we are living in incredibly complicated times. And, and of course the irony of it is that we ourselves are really responsible for, for making it that complicated. Yeah. It, um, if we will fast forward and we'll come back. Sure. Jean, Jean, I'm going to butcher her last name. Jean Bouliard. Is that how you say that? Oh, Jean Baudrillard. Jean Baudrillard. Yep. You read in your book about his imagined 1981 treaties, the simulacra simulation, and that modern day society has become a simulation, an invitation to the real world, which I think ties nicely with social media that we're talking about. Can you explain sure. that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, Baudrillard, a uh, brilliant French philosopher. Um, and his uh, theory of the simulation is essentially that our existence is a simulation, that, there, that he, he would argue that there's very little to our existence that is real in the true sense of the word. And when I talk about with, that with students, I always um, use the two easiest examples, which is we're sitting inside in a classroom with artificial light and artificial heat or air conditioning. Um, that's a simulation. None of that is real. Um, and so I think that that certainly social media, uh, what we once called virtual reality, although I guess that that phrase is sort of falling out of favor, um, is is completely a curated, uh, constructed artifice. And if we get sucked into it, as, as sadly many people do with things like, you know, Instagram, especially kids, um, it can really be, uh, have a tragic outcome where you just lose all ability to become objective and you see everything through the lens of, well, I, I don't have what he has. I'm not doing what she ha is, you know, I mean, it, and, and, some of it is is certainly social media the way that it is constructed um invites that right um if, if you if you i mean i have an instagram account i i don't post on it because i i'm still not entirely sure how it works but but i um i do kind of look around on instagram and and i see people posting just the strangest strangest things um it, it it's it's you know, there's this whole obsession with posting your food that you're going to <laughs> like, what? Um, but I could see someone sitting there saying, oh, well, you know, that looks really good. And here I am, you know, with my TV dinner. Um, and so what am I doing wrong? 
And so it really does beg that kind of constant comparison. And of course, almost always, it's a comparison where you come out on the short end. Yeah. Right? Why am I not as good as them? And uh, it's, it's a, it's a, as is the case with a lot of these sins that we've talked about, a lot of it ends up being very, very damaging to self-esteem. Yeah, it's true. What, in the event that, you know, we run with the simulation theory, do you think that what, in the event that it is a simulation, is envy the antidote to the simulation? Like, is it like, oh gosh, like I, I can see envy. That means that it's just a simulation and I shouldn't worry about it. Or is it more of this tapping into to get you to perpetuate it? Yeah. What, what do you think I about those? If you can see that it's envy, right. then, then it's a positive thing and you've broken yeah. out of the simulation, right? Yeah. If you have an inability to see that it's envy, then you are stuck inside the simulation and you're caught up in the in the whirlpool. So, I, you know, a lot of this comes down to, again, perspective and something which we talked about in one of our first conversations, the, the, the problem of objectivity and subjectivity um, and, and our, our growing inability to be objective about the world around us. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up that book. It seems like just doing that research and reading it, it tends to be french philosophers for some reason yeah. it really have nailed this thing down like i think a good companion book is guy debord's the spectacle of a society and he talks about the degradation of you know being into having like we're, we're human beings and now it's like we're not we're no longer being we're just having and then having slips into the appearance of having and it just continues to degrade and if you can see that timeline like i can see it in my own life like you used to own a house now you have a mortgage and you you have a house but you just kind of have the appearance of it because you never really own it especially if you have homeowner fees you know so it's yeah. what, well it, what do you think it is about these i'm sorry well part of it is 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 our our obsessively material culture mm. right it, it, it it's it's a problem where we still do measure ourselves and measure our worth oftentimes in terms of the things that we own or the or as you say the things that we have we probably don't even own them uh, <laughs> that's right we have them um and uh and and that's that's a problem it's 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 an economic problem um it's it's a psychological problem it really does um just create a, a a a whole just milieu of people who are just obsessed with having and owning things um it's the it's the supersized culture right it, yeah. it's it can't be big enough um it can you know give give me bigger we were talking i was talking about this with my wife the other day it was funny we were um we i forget where oh we were we we'd gone out to lunch on Saturday, something we rarely do. And we just went to a, a, a burger place. Um, my wife is vegan and I'm vegetarian. And they had they have uh, veggie burgers at this place. And we we literally ordered veggie burgers, fries, and, and a soda, and it cost us 40 bucks. Whoa. And it was just, you know, when did that happen? And, and we, you know, 
both became kind of nostalgic thinking about when we were kids and how much that would have cost. I mean, I very, very vividly remember going into a luncheonette one summer when I was probably about 10. It was the first time anyone ever called me sir. Um, I had babysitting money and I wanted to treat myself to lunch. And it was a luncheonette and it was a, a, a burger, fries and a soda for $1.99. And man, it was good. Um, but, you know, what happened that now it's 40 bucks to go out and have a couple of burgers and fries? Um, and I think that the economics of it is troubling. I can't say I understand it all. I'm not an economist. Um, I've been trying to read and study more about what um, capitalism has really done to our culture. But it is difficult because it's very politically charged, that dis those discussions. And so it's difficult to really sort out what, what's going on there. Um, but as, I mean, you know, George, you live in Hawaii. I'm sure your prices are much higher than my prices living here in Virginia, even when it wasn't COVID and, and a war in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, it, it, it so... I don't know. I don't know what the solution is there. I don't know what I don't know what the solution is. I, I think that that part of the the issue, as you mentioned earlier, is having that ability to be objective about it. So if you're not objective about, about envy, you're and and I'll I'll say this again: you're in the simulation. If you can be objective about it, then you're outside of the simulation looking in. Yeah. Let me let me. Let me ask you this question and bring it back in doing so. We've spoken about what we know today about envy, and that's social media, and that's seeing our lives change. Obviously, there wasn't social media back in the days of Cain and Abel in the biblical times. However, the, the rich awareness of it had to be stoked by something. What was it that people were envious of back then, or what inspired people to, to know how powerful of a sin this was back then? Yeah, well, I, I think in many ways people have always been envious of power, mm. right? And so, really, what it comes down to it, even when we say um, being envious of you know my neighbor's nice car, it's still a power issue because that means that he has the power to uh, buy that car, uh, and I don't. So a lot of it does come down to who has the power, mm. and. Uh, that was the issue in a lot of the preaching through the Middle Ages on this. And even as we get into the, the English Renaissance and, a, and a, a great poem like Milton's Paradise Lost, where, I mean, his Satan is, is a, a picture of envy when he first sees Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, I love his first line. He says, oh, hell. He sees them. He sees how much they love each other. And he's envious of that relationship that they have. Uh, so much so that he even says at one point, in a different situation, I could love them. But he's out for revenge, and so he can't. But he does feel those pangs of envy. Uh, it, it, it's one of those curiosities about human beings, right? There was a, there's a, this conundrum that's gone all on for a long time, and it's the conundrum of forbidden knowledge. Right. We, we we were given the ability to be curious and to want to know. But I, in some strange way, if we are going to go back to the Garden of Eden, we were told that we weren't allowed to know because it's the tree of knowledge that we're not allowed to eat from. So 
it's 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 dangling something in front of us that then we're not allowed to have and that's very confusing um it's very confusing and i think that for a lot of people if they could figure out that the answer to that problem they can lead a, a heck of a lot more um just rich and and fruitful life if they can understand that that issue um i mean i and i mean i i i i i speak from experience because i've gone through it myself right i mean th this idea that well we have the ability to know we were created to be curious but we're not allowed to that doesn't make any sense and even satan in in milton's paradise lost even notes that when he he, he overhears them talking about the fact that they're not allowed to eat from that tree satan even says you know I, I don't understand what what could be so bad about knowing um they're not allowed to know and um really that's what's driven us as a species for millennia is this desire to know i mean even if you look at what's happened in the last few years mapping the human genome what an incredible thing what an incredible thing only happened because we are incredibly curious and we want to know now the problem that could come up as some have suggested is if we get to the point where we have answered all the questions then what what are we left with and so you know it, it, it it's like when i teach shakespeare and students say oh well there's nothing more to say about shakespeare everybody's already said it like well if that were the case we so wouldn't be talking about it <laughs> and they'll they'll ask a question about something that happens in a in a particular play in a passage and i'll say well there are several different takes on this what do you think and you know of course the the very logical folks in the crowd say well what's the answer right there must be a right answer to this and it's not a math problem uh, <laughs> you know human nature is not not solvable in that way but that's what that's what makes it a joy to to live i guess you know that's that's uh that's a, as you call your podcast true life right <laughs> that's right yeah it's amazing the mysteries that continue to unfold once we think they're solved and the further we go along the further we go along the more we realize we didn't know anything you know right. Yeah. Whether it's the well, planets being in glass or the spheres exactly. or us being the center of the universe, there's always these mo Galileo moments where like, oh, gosh, darn it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I forgot who said it, but someone said science progresses the death of one professor, or one scientist at a time. Right. Yeah. But even if you go back to Socrates, I mean, right. I mean, Socrates said the one, th one thing he was sure about is that he didn't know anything. Uh, you know, and and that's really that's a way of of approaching this, and it's something which which I particularly really love about about Plato is that attitude about knowledge that it's something that we don't we don't we don't really know anything, and you know you can go I mean you you mentioned Galileo I mean you can go to somebody like Descartes right yeah. Descartes who has to start all the way at the beginning I think therefore I am. Right. That's where he, he says, I don't understand anything in the universe. I got to start from scratch here. And the first thing I got to start with is my own existence. Do I exist? And he says, OK, I think. Therefore, I am. And Descartes was a Catholic. 
I mean, he had faith, but he had to start from scratch because largely what had occurred in the in the preceding hundred years is a complete shift in the the really the the literally the ground that we stand on with the Copernican revolution and Galileo discovering that gee, this the earth isn't at the center of the universe. And so, you know, an entire generation and and that that shift, that paradigm shift, right? What Thomas Kuhn calls a paradigm shift. We've experienced another one in the last 50 years with computers and the internet. It's just it's happened so fast and it's moving so quickly that few people have had time to really assess what the hell has happened. Whereas in the 16th and 17th century, things are moving slower, right? I mean, uh, Tilliard, the, the great uh, scholar, called it the Elizabethan world picture, right? That the, 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 the world picture had shifted. The entire attitude about the way the universe works had shifted from the earth is at the center to the sun is at the center and the earth just revolves around it. They're, oh my God, that's just unbelievable. And we've experienced shift like that, shifts like that as well today. It's just everything happens so quick. We barely have time to digest one thing before the next thing's coming along. I saw an ad this morning, first time I've seen this ad, and it's being run by, um, I think it was being run by a, yes, it was, a, it was a political ad because they wanted you to write to Congress. And it was opposing self-driving cars. And it was this cavalcade of video from inside Teslas, self-driving Teslas, of them either getting into accidents or nearly getting into accidents. And it was this one after another. There must have been 10 of them. And then it was this, you know, write to your congressman and tell them to, you know, outlaw this. Um, you know, and I, I use that example a lot with, with my students and say, you know, we, we've got self-driving cars. We just have to figure out whether or not we should. Right, right. And so much of what technology and science and what happens in the name of progress, while it may be ultimately beneficial to mankind and womankind and positive for us as a species, we don't give ourselves enough time to really reflect on whether or not it is because we're on to the next thing. Now that wasn't the case back in the in the in the Renaissance, for example. I mean, you know, the telescope which Galileo used to prove Copernicus's theories was something had, which had been invented for commerce. You 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 looked out at sea to to predict when shipping was going to arrive, so you could set the price on your goods. Galileo pointed it up in the in the stars and said, "Oh my gosh, look at this!" You know. It, it, those kinds of things are just incredible, and they're still happening today. It's just I fear that we don't hear enough about them because we're just moving so fast. Um, if you want to read some some uh, a really great scholar, a guy I really respect, and uh, you know, in the one in a one in a million chance that he's listening to this, please contact me because I've tried to contact you. His name is Hillel Schwartz. Hillel Schwartz is an independent scholar. He's written, um, oh, I don't know, five or six books. And he's written three in particular, which are, they're, they're mammoth. They're, they're, they're doorstops. And they are about things like sound or the facsimile and copy culture. Um, and they're intriguing. They're incredibly meticulously 
researched and, and very, very well written. And he oftentimes has been able to pick up on those little nuanced changes and inventions that made a big difference, but because it was happening so fast, we barely caught it. Uh, you know, I was reading this morning that, that Thomas Edison said um, something to the effect that he didn't invent anything, that it was all out there. He just was mm -hmm. able to kind of pull it together. Um, it was a very interesting uh, approach and attitude about invention for a guy who holds, I, I think, some of the most important patents in 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 the history of of the United States, to be sure, if not of mankind. Yeah, that seems par for the course. If you listen to Tesla, he says, "Oh, you know, I they, I was told this information," or a lot of these inventors right. say, "Oh, yeah, well, I just it was always there. I just put it together." You know? Yeah, yeah. It makes me. It may, maybe that the idea of philosophy, this idea of going all the way back to the beginning of like, okay, let me start from scratch. I think therefore, maybe that is the cure for envy. Maybe once you become envious, it's a signal for you to say, okay, I'm way out in the weeds, yeah. you know? And I think in your book, you write that envy is a sort of poisoning of the mind yeah. and it causes you to no longer see the world the way it is. In fact, you see this tainted idea of, self-conscious you know uh falling or something like that yeah and and that idea that 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 the that the you know as you say tesla said you know it came to him and and edison says he's he's kind of pulling things together it reminds me of the um the the, the piece of jewish folklore that before we are born we have all knowledge we we know everything and there's a, a folk tale that at the moment of our birth an angel comes down and presses his finger on the top of your lip and that gives us that little indentation which biologists know has a medical name that i can never remember and when the angel does that it it takes away all knowledge and we're born tabula rasa clean slate mm -hmm. and from a a, a jewish perspective that is the equivalent of the punishment for original sin that Catholics have and need to be baptized to rid themselves of. So we are, that is our Jewish, the Jewish punishment in some sense for original sin is we had all knowledge, but our punishment is now we got to start from scratch. And so there's this idea, it's philosophical, it's, it's theological as well, that the knowledge is all out there, right? I mean, it, it's the kind of the Jungian idea of the collective unconscious. It's all out there. It's just we have to figure out how to tap into it. And yeah, and you see that sometimes with like the mystic, the mystic tradition, yeah. or some the burning bush, or these these people that get a glimpse of yeah. of a remembrance, maybe. Yeah, it's either a glimpse or, or I like that you say remembrance, right? Because it, it's it's there somewhere. We just have to be reminded of it. And so, um, you know, there are people who have an incredible propensity for learning languages. Now, mm. aside from the psychological phenomenon, which is real, which is, I mean, some people just their their minds function in a certain way and, and they're more likely to be able to pick up languages like that. Um, there are others who would think that, well, you know, you, you know it all. It's just a matter of you being able to piece it all together in the right way. Um, and I think there's something to that. There's something to the idea that a lot of these 
I don't want to say facts because they're not really facts, but a lot of these nuggets <laughs> is a terrible word. Um, a lot of these nuggets are they're they're back there in our collective unconscious, and it's our job as human beings on that journey, on the the, the journey to individuation, to piece together the pieces of the puzzle. And sometimes the pieces don't fit. And sometimes the pieces make a really ugly part of the puzzle, but we still have to deal with that because it's all part of the big picture. And uh, without that, and without our, our, our desire to put the puzzle together, not to belabor the metaphor, you know, I mean, but then what have we got? We, we've got this disconnected kind of existence, which is just a bunch of pieces sitting out on the table and we can't really figure out it, it, it's it's the the age-old question of you know why why am I here what what's my purpose um and you know we would be probably uh probably would be a good place to start with somebody like Descartes and say you know well I think therefore I am right we are thinking human beings and uh some of us use that ability to a greater extent than others and some of us are more curious than others and i think that's part of that's what makes the world go round yeah it's interesting too i i when you look at it from that angle it seems to me while language is our greatest gift it seems so inadequate it's so difficult to thoroughly explain to someone exactly what you're seeing or you're feeling sure. You know, interpretation means, means, uh, God, I always mess this one up. It's, uh, when you interpret something, you, you, uh, what's, I can't think of the word, but yeah, the way the, the language may be one reason why we envy yeah. people because we don't understand why they have things. We just know that we don't have yeah. it. And so you can't explain it. There's no linguistic pathway. And so then you become this irrational thinker this irrational way of looking at life which just it, it sends you down like the wrong rabbit hole and then we get back to the you know you make a good a great point about equality evokes envy yeah what do you mean by that well if we really want uh, equality is not really what we want we want equity so equality is everybody has the same stuff right everybody has the same thing everybody has access to the same exact thing and that's not really, really what we want because that doesn't allow for any kind of um, merit. If I do something better, if I happen to be harder working, what we want is equity. We want the, the in many ways, we want the ends to justify the means, right? We, we, we want what we get to make sense and be just according to some law of the universe that we only only we can construct now for for many people that law is constructed for them right in various forms of organized religion and codes um but for more and more people today um it is a it is a law which we construct ourselves and it's almost made up it's almost a smorgasbord of the different religious traditions right um, you know, so maybe I, I, I prescribe to the the Ten Commandments and I, I buy that code, um, but it doesn't mean that I buy everything that's in in the book in the Old Testament. 
And instead, I'm going to look at the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha, and I'm going to throw that. You know, it becomes a, a kind of a stew. And um, that, I think, is where we have gotten to as a, a species here in the 21st century, right? Through all of our challenges to faith and our challenges to science, um, that we've come to an interesting point today where we're, we're and we will talk about this when we do our our wrap up on the on the book in a couple of weeks we really are i think sort of on a precipice here and it's an exciting time but it's yeah. also it's also scary yeah it's it does seem like that to me like i i truly believe we are in a copernicus moment like we are building up to something greater than we could possibly imagine you know we are we are we have breaking down so many barriers and so many walls and it's 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 everything dissipates before it comes back together i heard a good a good uh, analogy one time i think it was alan watts that said think of us as like a bottle of ink and you take it and you throw it against the wall and smash and all the ink begins to flow down the wall in this blot and then as it gets down it makes these really beautiful curly cues and intricate marks and then we look at those little intricate parts and go oh that's us yeah. you know but Actually, it's all of us. We're all the same thing. And it, it's it's us becoming, and maybe that's part of envy. Maybe part of envy is saying like, yeah, that is you. Like, look at that. Look how awesome that is. That's you. Congratulations. You did it. You know, or this can be you. And if people can learn to see envy from, in, instead of it inside the simulation where it's upsetting you and it's poisoning you, maybe the the idea of envy can be, like, hey, congratulations. Look at us. Look at what we did. We, we, this is love. You know, envy, envy can be a form of love if you're willing to notice that other as yourself. Maybe that could be a better definition of what envy is trying to show. Yeah. Us. I mean, I think, I think you're right. I mean, envy can transform into love and respect given yeah. the right, the right uh, mindset. But that if you are really engaged in envy and you are a truly envious person, that is really going to be a challenging thing for you to, to, to overcome, to get to that point where you can move away from, you know, oh, I'm, 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 I'm envious of what you just did to, I, I respect what you just did and congratulations, great job. Um, that's, that's difficult. And it's difficult, I think, because we've been taught from a very young age to compare ourselves to others. Yeah. 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 It's, I think in, in the latter part of this chapter, you, you begin to talk about how it's, I think you quote Charles Taylor and say that it's an idea of radical yeah. reflexivity. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, so Taylor is a, is a, uh, is a, a Canadian philosopher, um, written several really, really important landmark books. And uh, he talks about this concept called radical reflexivity, which largely really grows out of Augusta. Um, and it is this idea of just this extreme ability to reflect, to, to look within, instead of constantly looking without. And we tend to, especially in the Western world, be so focused on the exterior that we've lost our ability to really do that kind of reflexivity that he's talking about, where we can reflect and look inward. Um, it's a very important part of being a human being. 
And in many ways, uh, it is something which has been lost. And again, I don't mean to beat a drum, but a lot of it has been because of technology um, and our inability to, to shut off, turn off. You know, I mean, what was uh, Timothy O'Leary's thing about uh, it was turn on, tune in and drop out. That's it. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is sort of the opposite, right? Uh, um, this idea <laughs> that, the opposite. you know, really what we need to do is pull the plug. Um, and people, I, I, people do that now, right? I mean, they go on these, these, these yep. retreats where they give up their cell phone for a week or whatever it is. And it's just, it's, it's very strange that we have to do that, but um, it's that insidiousness of the of the technology that we just we can't get away from it, and it does really promote that that comparison that constantly you know I, I, I I'm one that, that that responds to email as soon as I get it. If I get an email, I'm responding right away. And to be honest, most of that is because I'm afraid that I'm going to forget. <laughs> and because I get so much email that it's going to go down into my inbox and I will forget. And so people are saying, oh, you respond. You're very quick about responding. And um, that will set up a comparison. It'll say, oh, well, I don't I don't respond. You know, I'm, I'm really bad about doing that. It's like, but why does there have to be that constant comparison? And one isn't necessarily good. Right. I'm not proud of the fact that I constant that I respond <laughs> to the email. I don't think it's always necessarily a good thing. Um, but it's that we're always set up comparing ourselves to others. And as I say, you know, it started in the schoolyard, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it appears to be a system of, of self-worth in a sad sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, and, you know, and then we, we just reinforce it as kids grow up with with our obsession with with standardized testing and you know well you're in the the accelerated group and and uh you know then we do class rankings i mean it, it goes right up the the ladder here and you know i i think the thing is we want to recognize excellence we want to appreciate it as you said earlier we want to love it we want to respect it but we can do that and not set it up so that oh you're better than him um yeah it shouldn't be always that you know well let's look at the two of you together and you're really a lot better than this other guy um and i, I don't know how we get away from that i mean I, I guess part of it is we have to be that way in some in some sense um i mean you think about when you interview people for a job they all want the job one person is going to get it because one person is the better candidate for whatever reason, um, arbitrary or not, but it, it 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 can be really troubling because it can um, promote a society in which uh, there's a lot of resentment. Yeah, yeah, you write about that that you know envy can turn into resentment, and resentment is just this. It's that like festers. terminal cancer. Yeah. It's like a festering wound. Um, yeah. When it gets to that point, it is very, very difficult to rid yourself of. Um, you know, I mean, we can be envious on, on. We can we can do envy light, if you will. You know, and then if it gets, <laughs> if it gets really serious, 
it becomes resentment and resentment is almost visceral i mean even when you say the word it sounds visceral resentment yeah um it it it, it, it it's it's very painful to to have that feeling of resentment do you think the resentment is is like part of you dying almost like it's it's like you've lost part of you when you become resentful and then all of a sudden it's not the thing that you were envious or resentful of it's that you don't have this thing inside of you anymore yeah and really that's what all of these sins are about is that part of you dies when you when you commit these these sins when you engage in this kind of activity a part of what makes you a human being is 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 lost um and i think that there there is the possibility of regaining it i don't think it's lost forever um there is redemption uh in 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 a both in a religious and a and a secular sense um but it 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 is it does make us a little bit less human and that really is what um the early writers on these sins people like avagrius ponticus and gregory the great that's what they keep coming back to over and over again is engaging in this kind of activity makes you less human which then of course you know begs the ultimate question of what is it to be human it's amazing the wisdom that those who came before us had this is some really deep thinking on a really long timeline and you know regardless of of whether or not people are religious or if they're if they have a faith of monotheism or, or pantheism or whatever faith they have to take time to think about these particular areas, these sins that we call them. It's so amazing to me that people had the ability to think this stuff through and to, like in one person's lifetime, it's very difficult to come to the, the ideas that these people have had. It's been thought about for so long and they're so true. It's, it's it's like this owner's manual and you know and like you said it's always changing like just like shakespeare you can look at these sins and see them through the filter of george monty or the filter of david solomon and they're a, a different they're like an instagram filter you know since we're talking about that kind of stuff and it's it may, maybe one thing is for us to do what we're doing and give people our interpretation so they could take a piece of that and use it and use it that way. It's it's just amazing to me yeah. how much power they have. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to 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 discuss this and give our different different takes. Um, I mean, it was Nietzsche who said, you know, there are no facts, only interpretations, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, it, it it really is about interpretation. And I think the more that you read about this, the more that you think about these kinds of issues about what it is that makes us human, it does advance us just as human beings. I mean, I, I started reading a novel that I had gotten about two years ago. Um, I had read somewhere something of Paul Valéry's writings um, that his favorite novel was this book called Against Nature. It was written by a, mm. a French writer in the 19th century. I'd never heard of the guy, never heard of the book. Um, and I ordered a copy of it, and it's been sitting on my shelf. And I finally pulled it down the other day and started reading it. Because I wanted to see what he thought. I mean, this was his favorite book. What was just so brilliant in here? And, uh, you know, I'm only about 30 pages in, but I can already start to see it. But the 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 issues that come up, I mean, it's a very heavily um, philosophical book, for lack of another way of putting it. 
it is a book about ideas. It is not a book about action. Um, this is not Harry Potter. Um, it is a book about <laughs> ideas. I mean, there's four pages about color, um, but it's brilliant stuff. Um, and it really is being inside a, a fictitious character, in this case, a fictitious character's mind. Um, and all that comes with that, that is both good and bad. Um, there are aspects of him that have already surfaced in the first 30 pages that are despicable. But there are aspects of us that are not very likable. Um, and oftentimes we just don't like to deal with it. It is, again, you know, going back to Jung, it's it's looking at that shadow self and and reconciling one with it in order to come out the other end. Um, so I, th I think that that constant quest, right, life as a quest, life as a journey and a quest. And this, again, is, you know, Joseph Campbell, right, pure Joseph Campbell. Love it. Um, Definitely. Also, you know, incredibly Arthurian, right? The, the, the question. <laughs> um, but I mean, this, this really, this idea of life as a quest that we are all looking for something and it's probably different for each one of us. And we might not even be able to articulate exactly what it is. Um, but we probably don't stop looking for it. And in fact, and maybe this is the tragedy of, of existence, we're probably not going to find it. Um, we may get glimpses, a la the mystic, um, yeah. but actually hold it in the palm of our hand for any extended period of time, probably not going to happen. Um, but that doesn't mean the quest isn't worth going on. Um, you know, Arthur's knights pretty much knew most of them. We ain't finding the Holy Grail. <laughs> don't even know where it is in most cases. Right. Um, it's this, you know, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be searching. And uh in some ways it's 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 existentialism, it's this looking at our existence and what it means to exist, which is one of the things that I that I, I like so much about about somebody like Jean-Paul Sartre and, and really looking at those questions about what does it mean to be? What does it mean to exist? Um, and then when you go to somebody like Samuel Beckett and Waiting for Godot, um, it too is about that same question. What does it mean to exist? Um, they're waiting for a character named Godot. They wait, wait, wait. He doesn't come. The play ends. That's existence. We are constantly waiting. And maybe that thing never arrives. And then our lives end. And so how do we reconcile all of that with our existence to justify our existence? Because I think that's what a lot of us are trying to do. And to make our lives worth living and worth being around for other people. Yeah, I I, I'm leaning towards the great Don Quixote for my idea of, of what existence is. Like, I've just decided, you know what? That is a dragon, and I am going to slay it. <laughs> you know, why, why, why not? Why Even not? as the windmill blades smack you in the head? <laughs> <laughs> Me and Rosinante, we are riding out there. There you we're go. We're going to figure this thing out. There you go. That's what we got to do. It's, it's, yeah, right? I mean, and, and I, I, think I think that I think people so. who live that kind of, uh, of 
I don't want to call it a fantasy life, but there is something <laughs> about about using our imagination in everyday existence. I mean, if we imagine ourselves as being on that quest, like Don Quixote, right? Yeah. You know, maybe that's not something so bad about that. Um, you know, we, we, we look down our noses at that and say, well, isn't that silly? And that guy's delusional. Um, but, you know, some of the craziest people in history have been uh, geniuses, right? Yeah, I, I think that's how um, Walter Isaacson in, in Steve Jobs' biography starts the yeah. book by saying the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are usually the people that can. Yeah, and Isaacson has made that point clear in his books on yeah. Einstein, his books on Da Vinci, yeah. right? It's 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 the same thing. Yeah, and I, in some ways, you know, when we look about envy or these these ideas that sometimes if, if, if you can break the simulation, you can see the absurdity of it. Like yeah. if you watch the Kardashians, like these people have fake everything. Like yeah. what? This is so absurd, yeah. but some people are so enamored by it. like, Oh, whoa. And they, yeah. or the, the real housewives, you know? And when you, I remember was watching the real housewives with my wife one time and it was this old, old episode where, you know, the guy ended up committing suicide and he was abusive. And it's like, what are you, what are we watching? Yeah. This, I can't watch this. This yeah. is ridiculous. This is horrible. Yeah. You know, and, and I, when I think of envy, one, one way for me that I'm able to pull myself out is to see, hey, this is, you could be envious about this, but maybe this is an example of what I need to work on. Or maybe this is an example of what the problem is that I can help. You know, and yeah. if you can just shut off the, the, bells and whistles for a minute and go okay what is this really telling yeah. me okay i need to work on myself here you know that's a good way to get out of yeah, it george, george you're a bit you're big on the mirror right that that, that you, <laughs> you you see you see this this stuff as as a mirror to look at yourself which is an interesting yeah. way to be to, to engage in in that kind of radical radical reflexivity right to really yes. kind of use those experiences and say well what does that mean and what does that say about me um, and I, I think that that's a that's a, an admirable thing to do. Um, I think sadly enough people don't do it, uh, and, <laughs> and you know all you have to do is see the, the 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 popularity of of all of that kind of reality television, which boggles my mind. Um, <laughs> I just I don't get it, and uh, why? And I and I often wonder, you know, people watching it, a lot of them will say, "Oh, well, I know it's not real." It's like okay, so then I have to ask, so why are you watching it? And you know, I, I have a, a, a good friend um, who uh, is, is listening to this podcast, so she'll appreciate this. But um, she likes to watch the the, the hoarding shows and the mm -hmm. my six hundred pound life or whatever the heck that show is. Called. <laughs> it's like, why are you watching that? These people are miserable. And, you know, some of it is, let's bring it back to envy. It's, well, you know, I'm better than them. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, it, it, it's regardless of how bad I might be, at least I'm not that bad. Uh, yeah. And I, I don't know. That's that's just a, a, a troubling sign of our times, I think. Um, cue the Prince song. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is what it sounds like when doves cry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, we'll be on the road next week, folks. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the revival. We're going to have a it. long revival. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, fantastic. I want to be mindful of your time. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to leave us with as far as envy or sins or, or what we got coming up next? I don't think so. I mean, next week we'll talk about sloth, which uh, is is essentially most people think of as laziness, but it isn't really laziness. We'll talk about why. Um, and uh, it is the last sin that I covered in the book, uh, perhaps not ironically. And uh, <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what that means and, and why it is a sin, considered a sin. And then uh, from there, we'll move on the following week and, and wrap things up and, and uh, solve all the world's problems. That's... People are probably so envious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Well, I appreciate your time. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll get back at them next week. Thanks, Aloha. George. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that... I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, Go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.